Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and I'm here with Dr. Ivan Spencer, author of the book, The Tweetable Nietzsche. Dr. Spencer is a professor of history and philosophy at the College at of Southeastern and was instrumental in developing the History of Ideas curriculum and major for the school. Uh, he's also served as a missionary in the Sierra Madres of Mexico. He uh, is originally from Texas. Dr. Spencer has lived in North Carolina for over 20 years and he served at Southeastern since 1996. He'll be speaking with us today about his book and about Nietzsche's enduring Influence. Uh, we're excited to have you with us today, Dr. Spencer. Very glad to be with you today. Uh, the tweetable Nietzsche. I I get the idea. I think behind the book just by the just by the all of the interesting little one-liners that Nietzsche people are aware of. These one-liners, even if they don't know, they come from uh, Nietzsche. I I suspect uh, the line that which does not kill me makes me stronger. That's right. Yeah, there was a, a a pop song made out of that. I think Kelly Clarkson, 2012. You know. Yeah, and and know. I I don't think of when I think of philosophy or Nietzsche, I don't think of Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> no, and, she's probably not a nihilist. Yeah, yeah. And then our uh, another. I'm just going through your book, all of the various tweetable comments. What then is truth? Uh, it is an illusion about which one has forgotten that that's what it is. Uh, what that's an I think that uh, he was a postmodernist before postmodern was cool. Yeah, it's true. Um, are, uh, this, and some of his one lines, you're not quite sure what he's getting at, but it still sounds good. For example, he says, Not a few who wanted to drive out devils from themselves have themselves entered into the swine. And, and um, I'm going to have to ask you, what in the world, you know, was he talking about there? Uh, another another uh, quote I've heard uh, uh, another statement I've heard quoted a number of times uh, without giving him the credit is when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. It, 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 there's just so many great yeah. little aphorisms and one-liners. Not by wrath does one kill, but by laughter. Yes. You, you, I think I get the point that yeah. he's, he's, he's making there. Who was Nietzsche? Uh, my understanding is he's a preacher's kid. That's right. He grew up uh, in a Lutheran pietistic home, and his father was a Lutheran minister. And so from a very early age, he was uh, exposed to uh, that form of Christianity. If you know anything about the history of Christianity, you know that pietism is a, is a, a Christian movement to kind of return to the heart uh, and get away from Lutheran scholasticism. So he grew up in a pietistic home, a home of warm, um, emotional, almost subjective form uh, of the faith of Christianity. It was said that he could read the scriptures with such interpretation as to bring tears to people's eyes and so forth. He was a very gifted child. Uh, his dad died when he was four, leaving him to be raised by five women, uh, his mother, uh, his sister, a couple of aunts, 
and another relative. And so he lived, he grew up in, in this pietistic home with this subjective form of Christianity uh, without any father figure in his life. And so he uh, had always been very gifted. Um, I mean, this is a guy who became a full professor at the age of 24 in the 19th century in a German university. So, uh, which is which is extraordinary on so many levels. Yeah, I mean, it would be extraordinary any age, um, but especially then, I would I would say. Um, and that was as a philologist. So he's very gifted with languages, um, uh, ancient Greek, and so forth. He uh, so anyway, he he goes off to uh, school, the Scuola Forte, and there, you know, until he is a young man in his mid-teens. And then he goes off to German universities and is exposed to what is the avant-garde thinking of the day, which is atheist, materialistic, and it is uh, also, um, well, Darwinian. Darwin's ideas had just come into into the culture uh, when Nietzsche was about 15. So, and, and we would need to highlight that uh, in Germany, it was a particularly virulent form of Darwinian thinking. In fact, we could say perhaps that is where Darwinism uh, originated with people like uh, Haeckel and others, yeah. uh, where in which they saw any kind of mutability of species as the death of teleology and purpose. Yeah, that's right. So there's a lot of things going on there with German idealism, Hegelianism, uh, Kantianism and so forth. German uh, philosophy is, ex- you know, extremely powerful at that point in in the history of ideas. So he's exposed to all of this. Also, as you know, the this is the point where you get the rise of higher biblical criticism, and he's exposed to that and uh, works with some of these scholars. And so immediately being exposed to this searing heat of this uh, kind of hyper-rationalistic world that he's in, um, hyper-modernist, if he, his faith just evaporates. I mean, it's not unlike a lot of kids today who you, get, you can go off to American University and you know, just get totally you know, blown away by uh, the secularism and uh, atheism in our uh, universities today. So he becomes a naturalist. That is, he becomes a philosophical naturalist, an atheist, and abandons his Christianity. And so uh, he's very intent on following uh, that out to its logical conclusions, and he does, and it leads him ultimately to the conclusion that, well, there are no values, there, are, there is nothing that is right or wrong, uh, that uh, in an atheistic world, nihilism is the the final conclusion. So he doesn't really like that conclusion, but he has to live with it. He has to follow it out. I think that if if we could say anything, one of his virtues was intellectual honesty. There was a there was a consistency to his thinking that was brutal and vicious. He would take it he would he would follow a train of thought no matter what terrifying avenues it took him on. And that's right. And so he, he becomes kind of this, this is why, the, why his name is always identified today with, uh, with uh, nihilism, is because he took that philosophical naturalism 
to its end game, its end conclusion, and which is a place that is not a happy place to wind up. It's a kind of a dead end. It's a dark hole. You, nobody's ever thought someone like Schopenhauer was a happy person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the most depressing uh, philosopher ever, who had a deep influence on Nietzsche. And so, uh, yeah, Schopenhauer, you know, uh, pretty, uh, pretty much the, the most depressing figure in the history of philosophy. So anyway, Nietzsche follows that nihilism out, uh, and he realizes that this is a very unhappy, unfortunate conclusion, a bad place to wind up. And in the, I think in the depths of his despair, you know, I'm not really blending this in yet with his personal life, but he had gone through a lot of other problems and so forth uh, in his personal life, a falling out with uh, uh, Richard Wagner, uh, and uh, had a disastrous uh, romantic affair, and his health was also failing, uh, even though he was not that old. Uh, but uh, he's, he's having all kinds of problems. He resigned from his post as a, as a university professor after 10 years. He just kind of had enough of that and decided that he didn't want to pursue it anymore. And, and at that point, he becomes sort of a wandering um, sage, moving from place to place, usually seeking places of very high altitude because it gave him some relief for his ailments. But uh, anyway... He, exploring his nihilism and exploring many, many other insights that he had into the history of ideas, the history of Christianity, the history of Platonism, uh, and all Western culture, he comes to the conclusion God is dead, uh, and, and we have abandoned God. We have, uh, and it's not that he believes that God ever really lived. Yeah, yeah, We go ahead and unpack. What does he mean? You know, you have the famous parable of the madman yeah. coming into the village looking for God and say, you know, God is dead yeah. and we have killed him. Yeah. Uh, what, what, is, what, is, what is that all about? I, I think that's autobiographic uh, or autobiographical. I think that he sees himself as the madman, this prophet, if you will, that comes down out of the hills, comes down into a, a market town during, on market day and announces uh, that he's seeking God, and of course uh, th that everyone is laughing at him and everything. And so he uh, he tells him tells them God has uh, God is dead, and that we have killed him, and that there are consequences to the death of God. And the consequences are that all the values, all of the morality, all the ethics, uh, everything that is anchored in God, also has to go. In this regard, he is the the other side of the coin of someone like C.S. Lewis, where yeah. Lewis, whenever he gives his argument for mere Christianity, he he goes the other direction. He says, "We believe in morality. How do you do that without actually believing in God?" Right. And the, it, the moral argument. The moral argument, yeah, and yeah. and it's made very effectively during the dark days of, of World War II when Germany is about to take all of the world uh, on. Uh, and uh, Lewis doesn't have to work very hard to convince his listeners on the BBC that there is such a thing as good and evil, and they are fighting against evil. Yeah. And so how do you come up with that category? So, so you, in many ways, uh, both men were, were wrestling with the same, same concept. And something interesting about Nietzsche is he 
I think he's correct. If God is dead, then all the things that are anchored in God are also dead. But he never gives any arguments anywhere for God being dead. He just announces that God is dead. It just, in his way of thinking and in his cultural milieu, this seems to be an obvious truth. Right. We, we don't really have to give any arguments that God doesn't exist. It's just now an accepted fact. And interestingly enough, Marx was the same way, and so was Freud. Yeah. You know, they, you know and of course, Darwin never went there. I mean, you know, I mean, he entertains possibly that there's, you know, kind of a, a deistic, you know, transcendental creator, you know, transcendent creator somewhere in the world. But uh, for the most part, he, you know, God is completely out of the picture and everything that happens happens without God. So he's functionally atheistic. Uh, but he never gives any arguments either. And so this is often the case with atheism, is we just start with the assumption that God is dead. We need to give no arguments that he is. But when he says that God uh, has died, what he means is not that God was once alive and then died. He means that as a civilization, we once organized ourselves around the central principle of God, much like the Greeks once organized themselves around the Zeus and, and the, the, um, the Olympic pantheon. And so uh, just as you and I today would not think that Zeus was one time alive and now Zeus is dead, he's buried somewhere or you know, went away and um, ceased to exist, uh, Nietzsche is saying the same thing about the Christian God, the Judeo-Christian God, that not only did he never exist, uh, but he is no longer the centerpiece, the hub of our civilization. So now that he is not the hub of our civilization, all the values tied to that hub, all the spokes, if you will, tied to that, that central idea have to go as well. So if the center doesn't hold, what then becomes of society and culture? In this way, he did see himself as being in a prophetic role, would you th- do you think that he he was on to something? What was his what was his expectations? He uh, I'd say half of everything that he wrote concerned morality, morals, traditional morality, genealogy of the mor- of morality, and so forth, uh, beyond good and evil. He thinks that we need to transform values. Uh, he had a project called the Transvaluation of Values in which old values, the Judeo-Christian set of values, have to be uh, turned on their head, if you will. Uh, And now, values have to be created almost out of one's will, okay? One has to create value themselves. This is how he climbs out of the hole of nihilism, or how he attempts to climb out of the hole of nihilism, I should say. So he doesn't like nihilism any more than anyone else. It's a very hard place to be, a very hard worldview to live out. Uh, And so he asserts the individual's ability to create values for themselves and for their own ends and purpose. He's an egoist. Uh, So the ultimate value is one that serves you. And so by creating your own values one can then begin to create meaning, create truth, uh, and significant 
for oneself. So how does that fit into the expression that's generally associated with him, the will to power? Right. So the will to power is that one has this, one should have this tenacity to forge their own values for themselves. Uh, There are no values. There are no objective values. Make your own. So make your own values. Have the tenacity, have the strength, the courage to not fall into uh, groupthink and be conformed to your societies or your so- or any any social circle that you're a part of. Be conformed to uh, the guilt uh, that they put upon you, and and so you create your own values for yourself. And it takes this tenacity, this will to power. Now, the will to power is often associated with another concept in Nietzsche that's very dangerous. Uh, the Ubermensch. I was going to ask you, what does he mean by that? Who is the Ubermensch, the one who is able to, to embrace the will to power? Correct. He's the one, and it has to be a he for Nietzsche. Um, he's a little bit of a misogynist. Um, but uh, anyway, it has to be uh, a man, and it will be a man who has the sheer tenacity and audacity to create values for himself, to do the hard things, to, to, to do what is necessary to forge a new world and to take humanity to a, a super level, an uber level, uh, a new form of humanity that's above the old humanity that you and I are. So if I hear you correctly, what he was saying is there's going to have to be that strong man that individual who's willing to grab his nation by the ears and make them move up to a level and do things that they may not really have the stomach to do, but it's necessary in order to get us to where we ought to be, wherever that ought is. I guess the ought is whatever is that particular man's vision. Yeah, so now now we get to the connection of Nazism. Yeah, or even Stalin. Though I doubt Stalin ever would have considered himself Nietzschean, he seems to have also embodied the strong man. Uh, There have been, whether it's Pol Pot or Mao Zedong or Joseph Stalin, they believed that if it cost tens of millions of lives in order to get their nation where it ought to be, then just suck it up and do it. That's right. That's an acceptable sacrifice for them. So this is true. I, I think this is where many people make the connection with Hitler. Um, Hitler was known to visit the Nietzschean archives uh, that were kept by his sister, Elizabeth. Uh, and there are, there are photos of him being there, of photos of him doing homage to Nietzsche's bust. Uh, and, um, you know, doing research there at the archives. And she was a known uh, Nazi uh, sympathizer. Well, she was an avid Nazi. And so she promoted Nietzsche's ideas amongst the Nazis. They took his ideas, used them for propaganda. But you can see that there's a raw stock of ideas here that are quite dangerous. This idea that there needs to be a new super race and that this new super race will be brought about by a superman. Who will be amoral. 
yes. in terms of what we understand morality traditionally to be. Right. He will create his own values. He'll create them ad hoc as he needs, um, and they will not in any way, shape, fashion, or form look like Judeo-Christian values, which Nietzsche spent a lot of time analyzing uh, and deconstructing. Uh, Nietzsche saw Judeo-Christian values, of course, that go back 3,000 years uh, or more, uh, he saw those values to be what he called a herd morality. Or a slave morality. A slave morality, that's right. So what did he mean by that? Well, a herd morality slash slave morality is a morality that emphasizes taking care of the weak. Um, it emphasizes humility. It emphasizes um, certain values that are meant to bring social cohesion. Like, well, look at the Ten Commandments. Don't lie to each other. Don't deceive each other. It makes us mad at each other. It makes us tear us apart, each other apart. Um, uh, you know, don't kill each other and so forth and so on. Don't steal from each other. All of these values, this Judeo-Christian morality and, and the, the, the other values that go with it, the other commands, are meant to bring social cohesion. And so this is a herd. And so he sees all of these values as emphasizing weakness, as, um, you know, prohibiting the strong from being strong. Uh, keeping the strong down. And so once these values, these traditional values, are cast aside by the ubermensch and by those with will to power, then um, audacity, tenacity, um, ruthlessness, uh, other things that are necessary to get ahead uh, and to take the race, the human race, up to a new level uh, will be possible. So he really thought that we were the old, weak herd race, if you will, that we are a kind of a race, a human race of herd animals, like cows or something, uh, and that we were weak and we needed to be eliminated so a new predator race, uh, a powerful race, could evolve. So there is an evolutionary idea here, uh, and this superman, this overman, is a new man, is a new human. It's a, a human that's evolved to be above our lower, weaker form of humanity. So it's interesting that he does have some sense of progress and some sense that there is an arrow to history, and yet he connects this with his eternal re recurrence theorem. Okay. What is uh, the eternal recurrence theorem, and, and how in the world does he make that fit, or is it incoherent there? Well, I, I do believe that there's some incoherence in his worldview, uh, which I bring out in the book um, towards the end, trying to bring up some of the, the things that just, they don't fit together, they're inconsistencies. Uh, and the, the idea of the eternal recurrence, or the eternal return, as it might be called, is that ultimately all of history will repeat itself in a kind of a cycle. So he does go back to this old Greco-Roman ancient form uh, or ancient view of time, that time is cyclical, rejecting the Judeo-Christian linear time. So though he thinks that indeed the human race can evolve to a higher form, he does believe that ultimately all of history will turn right around again and come back. He, he depicts it as like a, a, uh, an hourglass that the whole cosmos is like an hourglass and we're just little specks of sand in this hourglass 
and it's turned over and over and over and every time it's turned over uh, you will trickle through the hourglass your speck of sand will trickle through the hourglass and your life will recur and everything will recur and everything will be precisely it was as, as it was in the former cycle so there is a kind of um, a fatalism here which gets us to this idea of amor fati he said that we should love our fate and embrace it and and it's it, this is kind of uh, where he, I think he's seeking some transcendence. I think he's seeking something to replace what is now completely gone. Uh, God, which is the source of transcendence in uh, in our worldview as Christians, but he thinks that your fate, whatever whatever your life is, whatever it becomes, is necessary. You have no free will. He's a determinist. He believes that free will is a complete illusion created by the slave ethic um, holding peoples to create responsibility. Without free will, it's hard to hold anyone responsible for anything. And so he completely eradicates that from his thinking and says that we, you know, free will is a complete illusion. We don't have it, and therefore our lives are fated, and everything that happens must happen. The best you can do is just embrace it, love it, amor fati because it's going to happen over and over and over again in the eternal return. So you've, you've demonstrated how uh, he has been an influential figure in the history of ideas. And he's affected uh, the 19th and 20th century thinking. So in, in today's world, uh, I, I sometimes I tell people that Nietzsche is the, one of the one of the people that's impacting their lives that they've never met or they don't they don't they don't realize the impact so how would you describe Nietzsche's uh, impact on today's world you know in the way yeah. in, in postmodernism it seems to me in so many ways yeah the, the postmodernity loved Nietzsche uh, the things that you know he talks about how words are just metaphors and you know that uh, really He's a hyper-nominalist as well in his view of language. That is that we create uh, meaning and truth. And this is kind of, this feeds right into postmodernity, the idea that all truth is a social construction, all values are social constructions, or even you know, in some forms, a personal construction. It's not, it's not that we interpret reality, it's all interpretation. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. In fact, he says that there are no facts. There are only interpretations yeah. of facts. And so every fact has to be interpreted, and usually it's interpreted within a social group, uh, some type of a social affinity group. And so those interpretations, after a long time being, so, being accepted, become so-called truth. We come to accept them as truth. They're illusions about which we've forgotten that that's what they are. And so this feeds right into postmodernity, and he was kind of like the prophet of postmodernity. And so, so you see Nietzsche tying together five worldviews from Christianity to naturalism to nihilism uh, to existentialism, that is, you know, fashioning and forging your own truth and your own reality, your own values, and then to postmodernity. Uh, I don't think he, we could ever say he was a postmodernist, but he certainly creates the, the, the raw stock ideas that uh, feeds right into it.
He's yeah, the precursor. It would, it would yeah, it'd be anachronistic to, to call him a postmodernist, but right. he certainly, as you say, he paves the way. That, um, your book is called The Tweetable Nietzsche. There will be a link in our podcast page that will link to your book. I encourage uh, our listeners to get a copy. You'll find that the entire book is written with the same type of clarity and uh, effective communication that you've heard Dr. Spencer present in this podcast. I'm Ken Keefley, and this is the Christ and Culture Podcast. We've been talking with Ivan Spencer about his book, The Tweetable Nietzsche. Have a good day. <laughs>